Week four, take it serious. If you have your Bibles or iPhone or whatever you want to turn to, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 6 tonight. And uh, man, last week was so good, uh, and I really believe that God's given me something tonight to really speak into you. Um, David has been the king now for about seven years. Um, a divided kingdom of Israel is now all submitted to one king, King David, the chosen king of God. All 12 tribes are together now. David has just won the city of Jerusalem. And when he won the city of Jerusalem, he, re- he renamed it. He renamed it the city of David. And in that renaming, David was taking a, a city that God had called the Israelites to take for 400 years. They have finally got possession of it. It is a city that is not divided by different tribes of Israel. It is the perfect place to build the capital uh, of the Israelite nation that God has called David to build. David has a desire to unify these people and make the worship of God um, for the one true God. He wants to make sure that the worship of God Almighty, of, of his Father in heaven, is the one central God to all life. So we have a truth that Jesus had not come yet. This is Old Testament. This is years upon years and upon years before that Jesus would ever come to the earth. And there was a, there was a separation between the presence of God that we have now versus what they had then. We have an advantage that when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are opened up to the ability to be a house, a temple of God that houses the Holy Spirit. You have direct access to the Father because Jesus said, I am going to pay your debt of sin and give you direct access. I want you to be intimate with the Father. The Father wants you intimate with him. So I'm going to pay a debt that you can't pay called sin, and I'm going to take on that, that, that beating and that bruising and that death on the cross so that you could be raised to life. The difference with David and his people is that they had not come to that place. The only way that they could experience the presence of God, it was in the Old Testament, it was that the presence of God was separated and it was housed in this thing. And I spent about seven or eight weeks on it earlier, this, earlier uh, last year on what this thing is. And if you know what this thing is, I want you to shout it out. The Ark of the... That's where the Spirit was in, right? The Ark of the Covenant. It was in the Old Testament, it, the presence of God was contained in this thing. So we open up in 2 Samuel chapter 6 because David wants to bring uh, the city of David, Jerusalem, into this place where they're all worshiping God and he knows that he has got to bring the presence of God into the city. So he goes and gets the presence of God. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1, it says, David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all. You know, there's something that stood out to me. When, when we first started the series, David only had about 3,000. Now he's got 30,000. Talk about a tenfold return. He led them to Bala of Judah to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of heaven's army, who was enthroned between the cherubim. The ark of the covenant, just a reminder, it was kept in a room inside the temple, okay? Remember, you had three places. You had the courtyard, you had the holy place, and then you had the most holy. Yes, y'all got it. Most holy place. The most holy place did not have candlelit. It did not have any source of light. The only light that lit up the holy place was the glow of the presence of God from the Ark of the Covenant. And it lit up the room. They didn't need anything else to light the room up. It was the presence of God in this most holy place. And what the Ark of the Covenant looked like, imagine a box and it had a lid on top of 
velvet, and above the lid, it had two cherubim angels sitting with the wings protecting it. They were protecting what is called the mercy seat. The mercy seat was on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and what, what it represented was that there was a separation from the presence of God inside the Ark versus from, from the priest entering into the room. And what the priest would do once a year is he would take the, the sins of the, the, the people to this most holy place, and he, they would sacrifice a goat, and they would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat representing the sins of the people. And that's actually exactly what happened with us is that Jesus says, I'm going to shed my blood so that when I raise from the dead, the mercy seat is removed, and now you have access to the presence of God. Does that make sense? So the, 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 there, there is this truth that God has sacrificed his son, whose blood was shed on this mercy seat, opening up this lid that separated us from the presence of God. Now, I want you to imagine that David and his people, they're wanting the presence of God, and they have it in the form of this this Ark of the Covenant, this box, this mercy seat, they had to do all these things through. And because we are on the other side of the cross, we no longer have to go to a holy place and a most holy place. The most holy place is that we house the very presence of God that was once separated by all these systems and rules that we had to follow for our own protection. And my question tonight is, do we take that serious? God sacrificed his son. He beat death, hell, and the grave so that you could contain the very thing that once had to be separated because it was too powerful and too glorious and too mighty for anyone to fathom or contain or even touch. The thing that you could not touch is now inside of you. Do you take that serious? Or do we take the presence of God casually? I was talking to someone today. I was inviting them to church because, you know, I, I do that like we all do. And uh, they said, hey, I may come, um, although it's, it's, it's a day, I said, day off, I was going to go to revival tonight. I said, oh, where's revival at? And they said, oh, Reggie Dabbs is preaching at a church in Savannah. Y'all, I don't know if y'all know who Reggie Dabbs is. He's, he's awesome. But you know what I thought to myself is, that is the definition of revival for the church. A meeting. And we call it revival because we know it's going to get all the Pentecostals in the room. Revival is not an event you put on. Revival is something that happens when we start taking the presence of God so serious that it awakens us. Our souls are awakened. Our hearts are awakened. And we get in the posture of God whatever you would have. We get in a place where we no longer look at our clocks because the preacher's taking too long. We no longer say, why is it four songs? We no longer say we have to have a time limit on worship. We are in a place where there is a revival of taking the presence of God so serious that we don't want to get out of it. I mean, think about this. The priests and, and, and all these people in the Old Testament, they had to go through a once-a-year thing where they had to get into the most holy place. If you remember the, 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 the temple, you had to go in the courtyard and you had, to, you had to go through the ashes and the sacrifices. We have access to that every second, and we limit it to once a week or even a five-minute devotion that some of us barely get up to, and we, we, we actually abhor having to do it. And God's like, do you take it serious that you house me? 
Like you are a temple of me. You, you hold me. And the reason why people are not experiencing the presence of God is not because the, that we need to ask for it. Oh, we want the presence of God to come. No, the presence of God is here. Amen. It's in us. But what is happening is we have caused a separation because it's not flowing out of us and nothing's happening in the church because we have made the presence of God about this let's meet so we can feel better about our crappy lives. And God's like, whatever happened to just seeking me because you love me? We, we were at the recovery Bible study this morning and someone asked me, uh, what was the question about love? It was... Um, he, he, he asked, uh, how, say that again. How do you know the love of God? And the most common answer, which is the correct answer, is, well, the love of Jesus. But the Holy Spirit dropped something in me this morning that I never heard before, but I think it's so good because it's Holy Spirit. <laughs> and, and God said, you knew my love because you were created. What does the Bible say? I knew you before you were in your mother's womb. So there was an intention, intentionality of God to say, I need this thing in my creation. He formed you before your mama and daddy ever started to think about it. And he said, I need to get you on the earth because there's something about you that brings the earth into order. And I sacrificed my son so that you could hold the thing to bring it into order because without the Holy Spirit, you are nothing without me. And do we take that serious? Do we really take it serious that we house the very presence of God and that when we come together, when two or more come together, he is, there is a greater degree of his presence? Do we take it serious that there's hungry people in the room tonight? Do we take it serious that when you go into a Walmart or Starbucks or McDonald's or into your job that you have something in you that can change the very atmosphere but all you can do is complain about how hard your day is? Do you take it serious that you bring God into the room? You know that song, when you walk into the room, everything changed. What if that's not just like singing to God? What if that's understanding that when you walk into the when you walk into the room, everything changed? They weren't, they didn't have that access. It was all separated and contained because Jesus had not come. Hmm. Last week we talked about the truth that angels protect us and God goes before us. Remember at the end of the last chapter, David was fighting the army. And God said, you're going to know to go because you're going to hear the footsteps of an army on top of the trees because God goes before you. You have this picture of the presence of God in this Ark of the Covenant protected by angels. What, is, what are the angels protecting? The presence of God. God says, I have sent angels to protect you. Do you want to know why? Because you hold the very thing that they were designed to protect. You want to know why thousands of angels are sent for you? Because you have something in you that can cause some serious damage. But nothing's happening. If anything, the church is having less effect in the world. Other religions are rising up. 
the church has become more obsessed with building up a pastor's name or getting a good worship album cut. And we've lost the fact and taking it serious that his presence is in us. David knew that the most important thing he could do was bring the presence of God among his people. It was his very first act when he conquered the country, conquered the nation, became king of all 12 tribes. He said, I've got to get the presence in. In Jeremiah 23, verses 23 to 24, it says this, I am a God, am I a God who is only close at hand, says the Lord? No, I'm far away at the same time. Can anyone hide from me in a secret place? Am I not everywhere in all the heavens and the earth, says the Lord? God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And I believe what the church has not taken seriously is the realized presence of God. We know he's everywhere, and we know he's in us, but we don't do anything with that knowledge. We know that the presence of God is all around, and we talk about, oh, he's omnipresent, he's all-knowing, he's everywhere, he's all-powerful, and yet we still complain about our struggles. We still wonder, is it going to get easier? You have the presence of God in you. And the angels take it so seriously that they surround you to protect you. God takes it so seriously that he says, I will go before you to make the path even clearer and straighter and easier for you. So that when I call you there, you can go into it without doubt, without hesitation, because I need you bringing me into the place. You want to, so Why does God need me? Because God is a God of order. And when he created the world, think about what he did. He made the heavens. He made the earth. He made the animals. He made the plants. And he called it this, called it that, bring the stars to the sky. And as soon as he made man, from that point on, man's the one that said, you ever notice that God stopped naming things the moment he made man? Because he said, you name the animals. What does God do? God has created this earth, this universe, this world in order to say, once I created the very thing that houses my presence, you have the authority. He says, you have the authority. My angels are protecting the very thing that has the authority that I myself have to live by. I created this world and gave authority to man. I sent my son and restored the authority in man. I'm putting my angels around you because the presence in you is the very authority needed to bring order to this world. It's in you. It's in you. Do you take that serious? Angels take it seriously to surround you because they know what you hold. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, there was three things. There was a jar of manna, Aaron's rod that sprouted leaves, and the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to go into a big teaching in this because you can listen to it online, but the three things represented a few great principles. That God will provide whatever you need. That's what manna means, whatever it is. Inside of you, you have the presence of God. It will provide whatever you need. It's a truth that God has called you to lead and produce life, the staff and the producing of leaves, and God has called you to honor his law, Ten Commandments. The angels see that in you, and they say, we're going to protect this very thing that you contain. And yet we don't see any of it in the church. We don't see the honoring of law. 
We don't see life being produced. We don't see churches who provide whatever you need, whatever it is, whatever we have, because we don't, we're still looking externally. Preachers are still, including me sometimes, still whine about when's the tithe going to go up. And God's like, my presence is in the people. I'll provide whatever you need. We don't take it seriously. Like, do you understand that everything they needed is in you? I sit in many circles in my life, and I've been guilty in the past of not taking it seriously. Churches spend more resources on a first-time guest gift <laughs> than, <laughs> than spending time seeking the face of God. We get higher attendances for Easter egg hunts than prayer nights. We spend more time arguing over Halloween than simply bringing the glory of God to where we don't need it. Can you imagine a revival where we're so obsessed with God that the kids don't have time to think about candy? Can you imagine a day where the church is so unified that no one has to choose anymore because it's all literally just one thing? It's not a competition anymore. It's not, I've got this many members and you've got this many members. It's, we are the church. But you know why we're not there? It's not because of branding and good preachers. I mean, the, the most powerful men of God were the most dumb men of God in the Bible. But we put so much resource into talent and skill. And God's like, but if you seek me, I'll provide whatever you need. So why are you still making decisions based off of once you get the need if what's in you provides the very thing you need? <laughs> the presence of God. In Hebrews 10, verse 19 to 22, it says, So, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. This is what happened. The separation is no longer there. And since we had a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with what? Sincere hearts. Not casual, not lackadaisical, not let me get my coffee so that I can praise with all my energy. Sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. What did we end on last week? Water is the what? The life source. You are made holy by his blood to carry the presence into everywhere you go. And he asks for one thing. Come with sincerity. Take it serious. It's a call from God. Do we take it serious? We come to this place in the story where David has seen God move on his life over and over. And we can kind of liken that to us. We've seen big moves of God. We've seen revivals all over the nation. And I hear people all the time talking about when is another Brownsville revival and when is the, the, the next Azusa Street. And I, I believe God's like, well, I'm kind of concerned with Highway 80 right now. Because if Jesus left and said, you're going to do greater things, I'm pretty sure that what we've seen in the past can't touch what's coming. And you know what we do? We don't seek, so we compare. (laughs) 
This is where David's at. He's seen moves of God in his whole life. He's gone from a shepherd to the flipping king of Israel. Victory after victory. Taking down lions and bears with the bare hands. Fighting Goliath. Getting food in places where there was no food. I mean, we have seen it all. And David comes to a place where he's about to realize how serious he needs to take the presence of God. So in chapter 6, verse 3, it says, They placed the ark of God on a new cart, everyone say new cart, and brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Usa and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart that carried the ark of God. Ahio, Ahio, whatever you want to say, walked in front of the ark. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. Let me pause right there. That's where most of us are at. Oh, the presence of God. Hallelujah. And we praise God with the, the cymbals and, and the, the piano and all these things and our voices. We get it. Yeah, the presence of God. Let's do it. We're in the house. Yeah, amen, pastor. Y'all love the Lord. Yeah, hallelujah. Verse 6. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah. Now think about this. He was bringing the presence of God into the house. He had a good heart. He had a good intention. And God struck him dead because of this. All because he reached out his hand and touched the very thing that was so precious that a lid had to contain it and angels surrounded. And then the Lord's anger in verse 7 again, was aroused against Usa. God struck him dead because of this. So Usa died right there beside the ark of God. And David praised God. Nope. David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Usa. And he named that place Perez Usa, which means to burst out against Usa. And it's still called that today. Look at what went on. They were doing church. They were in the presence of God. They're celebrating. They're dancing. They're singing. They're worshiping, and in a moment, they get to the threshing floor, the oxen stumble, Uzzah reached out his hand to stay the ark with good intention, and he was struck dead. Why was he struck dead? Inside the ark of the covenant, covenant was the Ten Commandments, the law of God. It's not something that we should take lightly. And there was a law established in Exodus that we see in First Chronicles, in Exodus 25, it's in verse 13, this is when they were constructing the Ark of the Covenant. It says, make poles from acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings at the sides of the Ark to carry it. Now, if you remember from the beginning of the scripture, they didn't bring the Ark in on poles. It was on a what? Is there any cart in that scripture? He says, I'm, I want you to make poles and carry it on your shoulders. In 1 Chronicles 15, 15, the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with its carrying poles, just as the Lord had instructed Moses. God instructed Moses, I want my presence carried in one way, not in carts. I want my people to carry it with poles of the ark on their shoulders. God's presence should not depend on a self-sustaining cart. It is to be carried on the shoulders of the people. And what we've done is we've put the presence of God on self-sustaining carts called the preacher. 
self-sustaining carts called the systems. We depend on the preacher to bring a good word so that we can get into the presence. We depend on the worship team to play good so that we can get into the presence. But he says, my presence is not to be brought in by a self-sustained cart. It's to be brought in on the carrying of your shoulders. So the degree of the presence of God in this place is not dependent on my preaching. It's not dependent on the prayer team. It's not dependent on the worship team. It's dependent on do you take this serious enough to understand that you are the container of the presence and when we enter in together, something awakens and we've got to pay attention and open our eyes that God is in this place. He is in this place. Systems are for managing crowds, not for managing the presence. You know, we've always built relentless for the past five years when we try to have a certain length of the worship experience. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I want to get away from that. I know we got to honor time, but I feel like God is the maker of time. So the best way to honor it is just to be in his presence all the time. Well, you need to honor my time because I've had a long week. Yeah, well, God's had like 4,000 years of failure among the people. <laughs> I jumped high right there. Woo! We're supposed to carry the presence of God, and the reason we don't see revival is because we're not waiting on one person to, we need to move from waiting on one person to get it and get the fact that it takes all of us just simply seeking him and letting the presence just burst out. So in verse 3, read it again. It says, They placed the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Usa and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart that carried the ark of God. I wonder when I read that, where did they get the idea to bring it on a cart? Because it had been written. They knew the laws of Moses. They knew that the cart was supposed to be brought in on shoulders with the poles. That's why there's rings on it made of gold with poles. Laziness put it on a cart. That's a whole other sermon. Well, back in the beginning of 1 Samuel, the Philistines, the enemy of God, were sending the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel because they had gained possession of it and they were under a plague. And in fact, there's a story in the beginning of the, chat of the book of 1 Samuel. They were trying to get it back to the Israel because they were like, uh, we got this thing and like there's a plague. We need it away. And it says that the men, they looked in the Ark and 70 of them died. 70, just by looking at it. Guess how they sent it to Israel? On a cart. That's why it says they, the Israelites put it on a new cart. You see, they thought it was the cart. They said, well, we're going we're gonna to take the ways of the world and we're going to use it to the glory of God. They said it works for the world so we can just use their strategy for our God. A new cart must be the answer. Now, you look at church. Look at, look at this very, I, I'm preaching against myself right now. Look at this very environment. We've made church, you sit there and gain from here. When was the stage ever in scripture? I'm not, I'm not scared to, to, to put this on me either. 
We've, we've got to re, we've got to, we're trying to build a cart. The world says, let me romance you with a vocal from a singer. We're trying to build new carts. You see, you're waiting on a good singer to bring you into the presence. When really it's just someone who's gifted in singing is coming into agreement with what you're already doing. It's not waiting on them. It's coming into agreement with what's going on. And then in that agreement of the presence of God, when someone that comes in that doesn't know him, there is such a unity, not band to you, but a unity in the people with the team, the people and the preacher. There is such a unity that Acts 2 happens. They come in with a hidden agenda, and the hidden agenda falls down dead because it can't stand the presence of God. We can't keep trying to build carts. We've got to step up and start carrying it on our shoulders. <laughs> We've got to take it seriously. The world does all the stuff and we try to use it for the church when the church should be teaching the world what success is. But it's completely different. We're going to the government asking for grants when the government should be coming to us asking, can you help us? It's completely flipped. And we think that the way to do that is just to build great organizations that bring in more money. That's not what God, God says, I have what you need and it's inside of you. What they need is inside of you. And the way you get what's inside of you is you start taking the presence inside of you seriously and letting me manifest as I need what I need for the world based off of what you have. But it's completely backwards. Is this all right? In verse 6 it says, When they arrive at the threshing floor, the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled and Usa reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. The threshing floor. It was a smooth, flat surface, and it was used for harvesting grain. See, they didn't have any machines to separate the grain from the shaft. They, 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 what they would do is they would go harvest what they needed, and they would spread it over this thing called a threshing floor, and their animals would crush it, and they would break it up so that the grain was separated, and, and the, the shaft, the, the housing of the grain, it would kind of like go in the air and float off so that they could get what was needed. They used the threshing floor. It separated what was needed for harvesting and what was not. The threshing floor separated what was worthy and what was not worthy for harvest. And isn't it interesting that the very place that Uzzah was found not worthy was on the... Because what the threshing floor is, it, 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 it is a natural means of figuring out who's worthy and who's not, who has pure motive and who doesn't. Because what we found in Usa is that he did not have a good grasp on what he was carrying. Because when he got to the threshing floor, the place that weeded out who was serious and who wasn't, when the ark started to fall, he treated the ark like it was any other object. And his heart was shown. What did he do? He reached out for it. When it was known that there were poles meant to be carried, they put it on a cart because they knew they couldn't touch it. And in a moment, when there was a shakiness in his life, when there was a stumbling, he didn't honor the presence. He depended on his hand. He depended on himself. And that's what the church has become. And I say the church, not the organization. I'm talking about the people of God. When, when life gets shaky, 
We don't take the presence of God serious. We reach out for our hand and try to grasp things. We try to gain control of things. We try to put our hand in things and say, how can I make this better for me? How can I figure this out? And God's like, you are not honoring what you should. You are carrying the presence of God that was once so separate that if you looked at it, you would die. And that very power is inside of you. And you're still trying to use your own hand. When the threshing floor of life comes that weeds us out and, and looks at our hearts, are we at a place where we're truly depending on the pre- when When life gets shaky, do you have to go to a church building or do you realize you are the church building? Like, do you realize you're part of a family? That you don't have to get to church, you can call up a brother or call up a sister. Do you realize that we are the carriers of the presence of God? It went in the fall, he reached out, and he touched it just like it was a regular object. He did not take it seriously. And what is our threshing floor? In Matthew 3, 11, it says, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God, but someone is coming, this is John the Baptist talking, someone's coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's ready to separate the shaft from the wheat with his winnowing fork. This is what was done on the threshing floor. And then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the shaft with never-ending fire. Who comes to Jesus will, will prove to be the ones who take it serious enough that contain his presence. But it's not those who call on the name of Jesus. It's those who follow his ways. Because he says, many will call on my name, but I will say to you, I never knew you. And what is our measuring tool of threshing for in the church? How many salvations we got per year? And Jesus says, that's the very thing that you need to watch out for. Because many will say it, but when it comes to my threshing, they don't know who I am. I don't know them from the shaft that's meant to be separated. Because they call on my name and say, Jesus, I believe. But they don't take anything seriously and actually pursue and follow me. I don't know about you, but that's a big wake-up call for me. I can't just, I believe in Jesus. I've got to follow him. I've got to dive into him. So that when I start to stumble, I don't reach out for my own hand. I just get on my knees before him. And let him do what he needs to do. I think sometimes when we stumble, we try to steady ourselves. When God says, I want to lift you up on wings like eagles. I want to take care of you. Would you just pursue me? We depend on ourselves so much. And when that happens, when the revealing of Usa, that he was not taking it seriously, it was just some random object, I would think that David would understand what's going on. David gets it wrong. A man seeking God's own heart got it wrong. Gives me comfort. Look at verse 9. David was now afraid of the Lord. Not a good fear. There's a fear of the Lord to revere him and respect him. But this was an unhealthy fear. It says David was now afraid and he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of the Lord into my care. Remember what God instructed him. Take Jerusalem and bring my presence in. 
And now, because of one man getting it wrong so that God could reveal who was taking it seriously, David said, I, I, I ain't bringing that thing in. It should have caused him to take it seriously, but he runs from it. But isn't that what we do? We find out that maybe through a message or through prayer, your heart's not right. And so our response is, I can't serve God right now because I got to get my heart right. I need to take a break because I need to get my heart right. And God's like, my threshing floor was never designed for you to take a break. It was to reveal your heart so that you stop leaning on your heart and start leaning on my understand, on the understanding of Jesus, on the understanding that you carry the presence. Since when do you carry the audacity to say, I get to do what I want to do because I've been revealed not good enough? Newsflash, he knows you're not good enough. That's why he said, I'm going to sprinkle my son's blood on the mercy seat so that mercy seat can be taken away and the presence of God's opened up to you. But that's what we do. David looks at it and says, I ain't touching that. And we start to reveal that we've got issues with this, 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 and this. Got some pride. Got some addictions. Got some gossip. Got some lying. And we, I'm not worthy. I can't serve. I'm not worthy. I, I, I can't pray. I'm not worthy. I, I can't lay hands on people. I'm not worthy. And God's like, I'm revealing what's wrong for an awakening that I need you because you carry something that they need. Huh. And here's what David did. Verse 10. So David decided not to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Idiot. <laughs> Instead, he took it to the house of, of Obedidim of Gath. We're going to call him O for this series. The, lark, the, the ark of the Lord remained there in O's house for three months. And the Lord blessed Obedidim and his entire household. What's amazing to me is that David was afraid to possess it because he saw what it did to Uzzah on the threshing floor. And what could have happened to Jerusalem, the city of David, Obedidim's like, I'll take that thing in my house. And when he brought the presence into his house, it says he and his entire household was blessed for three months. And what's interesting, in the very beginning of the passage, you have a man. I'm going to pull up his name. I don't have it. It's, it says in verse 3, they placed the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house. So as I was reading this, I started to wonder, and I thought to myself, why is it that Obedidim's family was blessed like crazy? but not Abinadab's. Because the presence of God was in Abinadab's house brought in by a cart. When Usa touched it and they realized the order was wrong, they brought it into O's house correctly on their shoulders. Abinadab was like, yeah, I'll take it. 
and because he allowed it to remain in his house, knowing its power, knowing its revealing on the threshing floor, he allowed it to remain, and there was blessing upon blessing. I believe that the threshing floor for us is the people that will allow it to remain or not. Because it's really easy to come here and get a taste. But do you allow it to remain when you walk out these doors? Do you allow it to remain in your conversations? Do you allow it to remain when you get frustrated with people? And, and, here, and here's the thing. If it hasn't remained, let the threshing floor reveal it so that you can carry it back in. Not, well, I messed up there. I guess I need to do this. No, 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 no. Threshing floor. It revealed what's going on. Let's get back right in. Hmm. And then in verse 12, this is, this is, there's so much stuff in here. The king David was told, the Lord has blessed Obedidom's household and everything he has because the ark of God. So David went there and bought the ark of God from the house of Obedidom to the city of David with a great celebration. They was like, all right, let's go get that thing. <laughs> all right. I got it wrong. But look what he did. He didn't, he, he didn't like get on his knees and go, oh, God, I'm so sorry that I didn't bring it in. He just said, all right, let's go get it. But that's what we do. Like, we, we, like this is, this is going to be gutsy, but God doesn't want you to spend, like, all your time on your knees repenting. He wants you to repent and turn so you can stop eventually repenting. Now, the fact is we're fallen and we're going to have to repent over and over, but you shouldn't be repenting over and over from the same thing. Because when you repent from gossip, you move from the death of gossip to the life of encouragement and you never visit death again. And then you keep moving from glory to glory. Repent, move on, and you keep walking. But we stay in this season of we're going to keep repenting here and here and here and here. And David's like, I got it wrong. I'm not going to spend years asking God to forgive me because I didn't bring it in Jerusalem. He said, bless, let's go get it. He got it and brought it right in. And he had to send people to get it on their shoulders and this huge golden thing that carried them, that they couldn't even look into because they die. And that thing is in you. Do you take that serious? Hmm. Verse 13, after the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord has gone six steps, six steps, after they are carrying it for six steps, he sacrificed the bull and fat in the calf. He couldn't make it very far until he realized what they were carrying. And the first thing he did within six steps was sac If you realize the presence of God in your life, sacrifice should never be an issue for you. I mean, I, 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 I just feel like if the presence of God, we took it serious every six steps, if you will. Every two minutes, every three minutes, every one second, I got to sacrifice this. You're too great. Let me sacrifice this. Let me sacrifice my need for acceptance. Let me, let me sacrifice my need for another paycheck. And I'm not saying don't work. I'm just saying sacrifice the need that let a, meaning a paycheck can't take your joy because your joy comes in the presence of God. 
Sacrifice, sacrifice, you're too great, I'll sacrifice it. You're too great, I'll sacrifice it. You're too great, you're too great, you're too great. And if you're not there, you have not taken it serious. I make mistakes all the time. I'm a man. I'm a sinner. And I'll take that back, I'm a saint. We all saints who sin. I mess up. But you know what I've learned in my life when I mess up? I don't dwell on the mess up. I sacrifice it, repent, and move on. You know why? Because you carry the presence. You got to take it serious. We got to get to this place where we realize what we're carrying. We're not going to let our foolish mistakes stop it. It says he sacrificed the bull and the calf in 14. David danced before the Lord with all his might wearing a priestly garment. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. David saw it, he got it back, and he carried, he carried it instead of bringing it on a cart. He honored God's ways, and the people of Israel responded, not with arguments, not with conversations, because, you know, you would think they'd be like, David, you can't bring that thing in here. Did you see what it did to Uzzah? No, they, they didn't do all that. It says they responded with shouts of joy and celebration. And David danced before the Lord with all he had, wearing his best robes priestly garment I wonder what your response is to God's presence is it a casual response or is it with, all, with an all your might response are you putting on a garment of praise are you putting on garments that radiate God's beauty and glory because you know the scripture says when he's wearing a priestly garment if, if, if we study what the priestly garments was I'm not going to go into the, a detailed, detailed thing, but let me just tell you what the priestly garments represented. It says he danced with this on him. He danced with the operation of the government of heaven. He danced with trusting in God with all of his heart, submitting to, to God in every decision. He danced with no longer being held back by circumstances. He danced with walking into his calling as a king. He danced in embracing the humility that the only reason he was even worthy to be king was God. He danced in putting on the mind of Christ in his conversations and his responses. He put on his priestly garments. He danced looking like the thing that he was going to carry. And when you start to dance like that, you better get prepared. Because people that know you, they ain't going to like it when you start to take it serious. And the very next verse, look what happens. Is this okay? It says, but the ark of the Lord entered the city of David. It says, as the ark of the Lord entered the city. I'm just going to call her Michelle. Michelle, Mike, Michael, got Micah, Micah, got it. Thank you so much. Micah, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with joy. Nope. She was filled with contempt for him. Now you think David is dancing with all his might, and one of his wives is looking down on him in contempt. They brought the ark of the Lord, verse 17, and set it in its place inside the special tent that David had prepared for it. 
And David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. When he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of Heaven's army. Then he gave to every Israelite man and woman in the crowd a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. And then all the people returned to their homes. David's doing good stuff. Dancing, blessing people, giving them more than what they deserve. So David returns home to bless his family. He returns home to bless his wives and his kids. When David returned home to bless his own family, Micah, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. And she said in disgust, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today. Shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any old vulgar person might do. The dude is doing some great stuff. Worshiping, blessing, providing. And one person doesn't see the greatness that's happening. All she does is act off of bitterness. Why is she bitter? Because long time ago in the story, Mika was the wife that helped a young dashing David escape out of a window from her father Saul trying to kill him years later David changed a little bit he was older he wasn't a shepherd boy who was wrestling lions anymore he was a sophisticated king he was a distinguished king he had an army he had swords and he was such a king and such a winner of armies that when he, went to go, when he went to go back to get what he wanted, he said, send Micah back to me. At this point, she had a new husband. And a few weeks ago, if you remember, when David called her, it said her husband followed her and they were weeping in tears because Micah fell in love with this man. And now a David, who she didn't really know anymore, called her back to be his wife, and because she was in so in love with someone else, when she walked back into what she was called to be with David, she was bitter and she was mad because she didn't want to be with this new David dude. She wanted to be with who she fell in love with. She was bitter over the circumstances, and instead of paying attention to what David was becoming through the threshing floor, realizing the presence of God, realizing what he's bringing to Jerusalem, realizing how amazing it was, instead of dancing, with the people, she focused on the fact that she took him or he took her back. Filled with bitterness about the situation. I wonder if the, re I wonder if the reason why we don't take the presence of God seriously is because we're still bitter about old situations. We're still bitter about stuff that went wrong. We're still bitter about the thing that was taken from you a physical thing, a relationship. We still hold on to the bitterness of old. And God's like, I'm alive. I've made a way for you. You carry me, and you can't get over that. Am I talking to anyone? We pay attention to bitterness so much that the presence of God is actually limited. There's nothing wrong with mourning. There's nothing wrong with grieving. The Bible says there's a time for it. But there is a moment where we have to get to the place where we say, I am obsessed with taking the present seriously. And even though I hurt, I'm not going to let the hurt diminish how seriously I take the presence.
and the presence of God gives me more than anything could give me. It gives me more than a comfort food. It gives me more than a, the comfort of a smoke, the comfort of a drink, the comfort of a magazine, the comfort of a video, the comfort of a movie, the comfort of the... It's more than that. Verse 21, David retorted to Mika, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as leader of Israel, the people of the Lord, so I celebrate before the Lord. Yes, I'm willing to look even more foolish than this, even be humiliated in my own eyes, but those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. So Mika, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. Because of her bitterness, she was never able to produce again. Because where was the production? It was in the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. And the only ones who could produce were the people who took it seriously. I don't know about you, but I'm willing to look so stupid because he deserves all my praise. I'm willing to look dumb in the eyes of a casual passerby because God says, go tell them about Jesus. Well, I don't want to look dumb because I don't know how to do that. Are you willing to give him a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of witness, a sacrifice to say, you know what? I don't need all the methodology. All I need is to walk in the passion that I have, the presence. And he will give me what I need if I say yes in the moment. I wonder if we don't produce not because we don't have the ability, but because it's locked up in a dry response to not taking the presence of God seriously. In Revelation 3, 15 through 16, it says, I know all that you do, and I know that you are neither frozen in apathy nor fervent with passion. How I wish you were either one or the other. But because you're neither cold nor hot, you're just lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out my mouth. You do you take it seriously. You have a great honor we have a great honor of carrying the presence of God wherever we go. You know, every Saturday night, everyone's invited, but there's always a group that stays after and we all go out to eat. And I was just thinking that day, like, what if our dinner gatherings, like, you know, the Bible tells us to fellowship with each other and that's like the main point of it. But what if it also became about who, who is God going to allow us to minister to who waits on us tonight? They would be so touched by our group that's different. And when they say, why are y'all so happy? It's the presence of God. Like, it should change people. It, it, it should change people. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'm about to read the whole passage, and I want you to read along because it's an amazing response to what had just happened. This is what I'm closing with. Because he just, King David just went from a realization of how the presence of God was not being taken serious. And then he took it serious. And he forsake everything for it. It says, when King David was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies. Look at that. As soon as he took it serious, it says he got rest from all of the surrounding enemies. It doesn't say that the surrounding enemies went away. It says God had given him rest. Your rest is not dependent upon your enemy disappearing. Because the enemy is going to be there until the day the Lord returns. 
but you will gain rest in the midst of it when you take the presence of God seriously. The king summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said. Now this is him taking the presence of God seriously. He says, I'm living in this beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out there in a tent. That's noble. He wants the the presence of God to be in the, the palace. So Nathan replied to the king, Go ahead and do whatever you have in mind, the Lord is with you. But the same night that the Lord that but the same night the Lord said to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord's declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I've never lived in a house. From the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day, I have always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. Yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I have never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds of my people Israel. I've never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar home? Now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture, selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone. I have destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. And now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth. Say amen if that's happened. (laughs) I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I'll make his kingdom strong. (laughs) He is the one who will build a house a temple for my name. (laughs) I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. If he sins, I'll correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time. Your throne will be secured forever. Look at what God says, David. He says, You're not the one meant to build me a house. But I will build yours. And it will be great. You will be made great. You will be famous. I'll bless you. And and if you would stay true to that, out of your descendants will be the one to build me a house. Guess where Jesus came from? The lineage of. So Nathan went back to David and told him everything the Lord had said in his vision. And then King David went in and sat before the Lord and prayed. Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And now, sovereign Lord, in addition to everything else, you speak of giving your servant a lasting dynasty. Do you deal with everyone this way, O sovereign Lord? What more can I say to you? You know what your servant's really like, sovereign Lord. He's like, David's like, God, you know me. Because of your promise and according to your will, you have done all these great things and have made them known to your servant. How great you are, O Lord. There is no one like you. We have never heard of another God like you. What other nation on earth is like your people, Israel? What other nation, O God, have you redeemed from slavery to be your own people? You made a great name for yourself when you redeemed your people from Egypt. You performed awesome miracles. You drove out the nations and gods that stood in their way. You made Israel your very own people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, I am your servant. 
do as you have promised concerning me and my family. Confirm it as a promise that will last forever. May your name be honored forever so that everyone will say, the Lord of heaven's armies is God over Israel. And may the house of your servant David continue before you forever. O Lord of heaven's armies, God of Israel, I have been bold enough to pray this prayer to you because you have revealed all this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For you are God, O sovereign Lord. Your words are truth. You have promised these good things to your servant. And now may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. You have spoken. And when you grant a blessing to your servant, O sovereign Lord, it is an eternal blessing. You know what David just realized? David was like us. He realizes the presence of God and how great it is. And the first thing he does is talk about why should I get all of this glory and you be in a tent? And God says, it's not your place to decide where I go or how I reveal myself. He says, you seek me, you care at my will, and I will bless you like I want to bless you. And because of David taking it seriously, the one who was going to build the house, the temple for the Lord to dwell in, came years and years and years later. That name is Jesus. And you know the great thing about Jesus? He says, I'm going to build a temple for my Father to dwell in. And that temple is you, the church. The promise that the Father spoke to David is you. We are the house of God. You contain his presence. So let's start taking it seriously. Amen.